The message that God has placed on my heart has really three different components to it, three different aspects. It might say three different pieces. The first two are, in one sense, the precondition, the prerequisite, in order to properly fulfill that third piece. So if I sound like I'm speaking a mystery, I'm going to make it real clear in a moment. But I know that the Lord placed in my heart by his spirit very strongly. He knew everyone who would be here and everyone who's watching online. The challenge for a dominant desire to arise within us and a dominant appetite that would arise within us in order that we would have a dominant identity that is rooted solely and completely in Christ. And so that third piece stabilizes itself on the basis of the first two pieces. You have to have that dominant godly desire that resides within you, pulsates within you, that impacts every choice, every decision, your attitude, your actions, your conduct, the totality of your behavior. A dominant, supreme desire that pulsates within your soul. Now, I know desire is always going to compete with duty. Desire is the thing that I want to do, and duty is the thing I have to do. But no matter what, desire inside will eventually dominate. And you've got to make sure that you have one dominant desire that's yoked to one dominant appetite, that hunger within you that drives you, that becomes the impetus that thrusts you forward in the direction that God Almighty wants you to go as his son and daughter. And then yoked to those two realities is the absolute powerhouse reality of knowing your identity in Christ. Not religiously, not superficially, not artificially, but authentically in your soul and in your being. Dominant desire. Let me start there. That's that pulsating want in you and in me, in all caps. Now, it can be ungodly or godly, but when it becomes dominant, it rules you, pushes you, thrusts you forward. I remember as a young man, nine, ten years old, back there in Chicago, behind my house was a big hill. And all of you, I'm sure, are accustomed to playing that game of, you know, the king over the hill. And I had cousins and friends within the neighborhood. We'd all gather together, and then everyone would go up on top, and we'd start pushing and kicking and hitting and doing all that kind of stuff so that you could be the final one there. But what I would do is when there was one up on top and he was ruling like King Kong, I'm the king, I'd get a bunch of my cousins, Johnny, Paulie, Joey, you know, all of them, and I'd say, okay, listen, you guys form like a train. You guys get in front and like we're going to move up fast and strong up the hill. And we would, and I'd follow all of them, and we'd get all the way up to the top and there was enough momentum and enough strength and enough in number that we would throw them right off the hill. But then what I would do is I'd take advantage of the moment and throw all the other ones over, and then I'd be standing there as the king over the hill. And then they would attack me, my cousins. It lasted, it was momentary, but it was wonderful to be on top. Dominant, supreme. What is the desire that's within you that's dominant? It's king over the hill of your life. In Scripture, 
First John in chapter 2 and verse 16, it describes an ungodly desire. Now realize in the scope of the Old and New Testament, if you were going to synthesize an understanding of an ungodly desire, it would be defined as, the word that would be used, the term is lust. Now we usually think of that in the context of sexual sins, but in the broad stroke, lust is that ungodly desire that skews you off course and sets you in a direction that is foreign to his will and his ways. And in Holy Scripture, it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, here's the description that's given for all that is in the world, the lust, the ungodly desire of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, here's how I see it unfolding. The lust of the flesh is saying, on the inside, you'd never articulate it outwardly. It would eventually be observed in what you do, but inside it's you saying, I want. And then the lust of the eyes is just intensifying that and saying, I really want this. And then the pride of life is saying, I will have it. And so it evolves very dangerously as it manifests through your life and mine. It becomes a dominant, ungodly desire, lust. that says, I want, I really want, I will have it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The antithesis of that, the polar opposite of that, is a godly desire. Holy Scripture will define that as a passion. And think of the most positive connotation in relationship to that word, a passion. And the Scripture says in Psalm 73 and verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. The psalmist is saying this. In this case, it's not David who pens this particular psalm. It is penned by one of his uh, key leaders over worship, Asaph. And in this particular psalm, it, Psalm 73, it's kind of pulsating with a lot of confusion, disillusionment about why do the wealthy and the ungodly and the unrighteous prosper so? Why does it seem like they have no problems and no difficulty? Everything is going fine for them. The psalmist, a godly man, penning it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is still expressing that frustration of, I don't get it, God. Why do the unrighteous seem to prosper, be in control, are so happy and everything they want they get. Yet the righteous are suffering persecution, rejection, ridicule, and they seem to be in somewhat of despair. And that's kind of the whole theme and motif. It's the very atmosphere, the ambiance of that particular psalm. And it can create a level of difficulty. And then the psalmist stops and says, no, no. The most important thing that I harbor in the chambers of my heart that literally dominates me to the point of possessing me because it's so preeminent is this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you.
that desire on the inside. How might you achieve that? How can you get that desire? What's a practical path that you could take to get it, maintain it, and then advance it in the chambers of your own heart? I believe that that's found in Psalm 37 in verse 4, and this is what it says. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, this is something I try to practice in the context of my own life. First of all, realize that in the syntext, it means how it's laid out grammatically in the original language, the, the Hebrew the arrangement of the adjectives and the nouns, the verbs, how it's laid out, it communicates the idea that this is not a pre-existent desire that God wants to fulfill. It's a desire he deposits into you. So when you delight in the Lord, it doesn't mean you look in and say, well, I got all these different desires, now fulfill them, God. No, it's saying, if you delight in me, I will place into you the godly desires that you should have. It's a blank tablet. Tabla rasa. It's a complete blank tablet. You're ready for God with his hand to inscribe and write upon you the godly desires that he wants you to have. The want on the inside that becomes so dominant within you. So you say to the Lord, I want to delight myself in you. That action point of delight means in the Hebrew language to set your attention upon and your affections toward to set your attention upon and your affections toward. So when you and I say, I'm going to delight in you, Lord, it doesn't have to do with your emotions or your feelings. It has to do with your intentionality of saying, I'm going to intentionally, purposefully, with my whole heart, place my eye upon you. Now, you might say, well, that's nebulous. It's a bit ambiguous and a bit of a mystery, Pastor. How do you do that? Well, think of how you do that in everyday life. You set your eye on certain things that are conceptual and abstract. Someone might say, I'm giving myself over to greed. You don't actually see it, but the manifestation of it is an inordinate preoccupation with accumulating things to give yourself identity. Greed. If you know how to set your eye in a certain direction, you definitely have the ability to set it upon the Lord. I remember something God spoke to my heart years ago when he said, Gary, if you will give me your eye, I'll give you my heart. Give me your eye, your focus, your concentration, your attention. Give me your eye and I'll give you my heart. Ezekiel 36 speaks about God giving us his heart, shaping that on the inside of you. I remember he told me also, Gary, if you don't look at me, you'll never look like me. If you don't look at me, You'll never look like me. To prioritize setting my eye upon him at the very beginning, the inception of my day. Now, you might say, I don't have time. Oh, you have time. You just don't have a priority. You have to say, this is a priority. Now you'll have time. And when you say, okay, I'm going to set my eye towards you, Lord. I'm going to fix my gaze upon you. I'm going to delight in you. I'm going to give you my full attention and all my affections. God will superimpose right into your will. He'll drive it right into your spirit and your whole being, a godly desire. And that desire will be dominant on the inside of you that finds its author, him. And then he'll arrange all the other desires. The most preeminent dominant must be a desire for God. I desire you above everything else. 
And then what is secondary, tertiary, that'll all line up according to his will as you depend on him, trust him. You'll see how that delight will create the right desire and set you then in the right direction as you yield yourself to him. The second is to have a dominant appetite. Now, that's something that doesn't come through delighting. It comes by a request, an asking of God. God, give me a hunger. Give me a, a hunger for you, a thirst for you that's insatiable. I ask you to do that in my life. I remember those men and women of God who mentored me years ago as a teen. Most of them have gone on to be with Jesus. But I remember they, would, they prayed that over my life. They said, oh, let this young man, and I had all my insecurities, my immaturity, please, those of you that are older, see the potential in a young person's life. Don't create a wall, but a bridge. Look for an opportunity to invest in their life, deposit into their life. Let your maturity speak over their immaturity, but don't reject them. Ephesians 4, 15 says to speak the truth, not in rejection, but in love. And they would speak truth to me. I remember when I was at the altar as a young man. I was 16, 17 years old. I had just given my heart to the Lord. And I was saying privately, God, this is something between me and you. You know, my, my faith in you, Jesus. I don't really want to share it with my friends because I know they may not, may not be popular anymore if I do that. So just between me and you, if we could keep this very private, very personal, that it never has to be, become public. Honest, before the Lord, the moment I said that, I felt a hand come on me. I looked behind me, and it was an elderly gentleman in our church. Probably he was about 80, 85 years old. His name was Brother Solomon. This is back at Homewoodful Gospel Church in Chicago. And he started to pray. He said, oh, God, use this young man. Make him courageous. Make him bold. Let him share his faith with all his friends and all of his family and all of the neighborhood. Oh, no, yes, God, use him mightily. In years to come, let him proclaim the gospel like an evangelist. And I was like, oh, please take your hand off me. But, you know, I thank God that Brother Solomon prayed that prayer over me. And others, when they prayed over me, they said, oh, God, give Gary a hunger for you, an appetite for you. And I thank the Lord, I don't know what, 47 some years later, I still have that. No credit to me, but to the prayers that were lifted that I would have that appetite. And I'm praying for that, for you that you'd have that appetite and that hunger for God. You know, the diet, by definition of Webster, it's, you know, what you choose to eat. That's the raw definition of diet. It actually comes out of the Greek and the Latin, means one's way of life. Diet, the etymology of the word in the Latin especially. One's way of life, what you eat. Diet. However you want to unload that or unpack that, that's the reality of you and I, our diet not just physiologically, but emotionally, relationally, and spiritually, impacts us in a, in a huge way. Now, I remember when I, as a young man, before I got married, I was in my 20s. I was uh, thin, about seven foot tall, incredible, <laughs> incredible physique. That's why I always ask the cameras, get the best shot of me, would you please? You know, where I look thin and tall. 
But I uh, had a diet, and it was Monday, it was uh, spaghetti. And Tuesday, it was ravioli. And uh, Wednesday, it was stuffed shells. And Thursday, it was gnocchis. Friday, it was lasagna. And then I forget Saturday. And then on Sunday, you know, I'd always honor the Lord. I'd, I'd eat angel hair spaghetti. Angel hair. Just, just fit right for Sunday. So when I got married, Diane said, oh, that is going to stop. We're going to eat healthy. I said, no, I don't want to eat healthy. I'm just fine. She goes, no, in years to come, you're gonna, everyone's going to know you eat pasta every day. When will I get to have it? She said, on, on Sundays. Only on Sundays. I said, but that wasn't part of our marriage covenant. She goes, that's our covenant. And thank God. But believe me, that's why I know exactly what time to end this service. Because today, on the seventh day, he makes pasta for me. Also, I think all of us are aware COVID-19's done a number. On all of us, we know it. No one will say it to you. I see it. You see it. So I said, I got to get on some diet plan. <laughs> so I checked out uh, Nutrisystem, Weight Watchers, even Jenny Craig. And each of the portions were ludicrous, ridiculous. So I decided I'd do all three. <laughs> it's beautiful. Each one of them gives me an abundance to eat every morning, afternoon, and evening. Go back to reality now. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled See, that's, that's a godly appetite. That's a godly hunger. You hunger for God. That becomes the dominant appetite that supersedes all other appetites then. And you know there can be a variety of different appetites. Some of them might be very dark, and some of them might be just kind of neutral. But you know if that particular appetite takes preeminence. Maybe you have an appetite for recognition or acknowledgement or an appetite for things or an appetite for entertainment or sports. Maybe in and of themselves, they don't seem all that dangerous. I remember John Piper, who's a great theologian. He's a seven-point. You know, usually you hear a five-point. He's a seven-point Calvinist. I'm not a Calvinist, but I appreciate his passion and his love for the Word of God. And he was speaking about hunger and appetite, and he said, hey, I think one of the greatest dangers to our appetite or hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. Not poison, but apple pie. I knew what he was saying. We know what he's saying. They could be the things that we don't think are all that threatening. Well, I have a hunger and a thirst for that. What could be wrong with it? If it supersedes the dominant hunger and thirst that should be in your life, then it is dangerous to you. That apple pie will become poison. So you have to do some soul searching and step back and say, Oh God, what is the dominant, yes, desire in me, but what is the dominant appetite and hunger within me? Or will I find myself, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, if you'll put that verse up, it says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. It's a warning to me and to you, to all of us. you got to be careful where you go to be satisfied. You can't go to the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't mix the two. It's, 
It's counterintuitive. It's dangerous. You have to say, oh, God, remove these dark appetites by baptizing me, inundating me with an appetite and a hunger for you and you alone. Do that within me, Lord. What, what, what's your action point there? What's your takeaway? Ask him. Just say, God, today when you drive home, when you're sitting, if, hey, listen, if your appetite is looking at way too much TV or getting on the computer, you, you know. Step back. Maybe turn it off and say, God, give me that hunger and that appetite to see, taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, the scripture says in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. That becomes your diet. You eat of the words of the Lord. If you're not sure about that, just consider Jeremiah, what he says in Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. He said, I'm going to eat your word, Lord. I'm going to eat it. And the prophet Ezekiel literally takes a scroll and eats it as an outward sign of the reality of I'm going to take your word on the inside. I'm going to internalize it. I'm going to personalize it. It's going to become a part of me. It's not just going to be academic. It's not just going to increase my biblical literacy. It's going to be a part of who I am. I'm not just going to be a hearer. I'm going to be a doer. And not only that, but I want you to think of John chapter 6, where Jesus gives us what theologians will call a theological hyperbole, an exaggeration to make a, a, a very, very intentional point when he says, you've got to eat of me. You've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. He says that in John chapter 6 and verse 53, but then in verse 63, he clarifies, he says, what I speak to you is spirit and truth. In other words, you're not going to literally do this. I'm not endorsing cannibalism, but I'm inviting you for such a level of intimacy that this is not working from the outside. It's got to work from the inside. You've got to eat of my life, my presence, that level of intimacy and closeness. And you have to eat of his word, like I just said. I, I, when I take the, the Bible, I say, I'm going to eat of your word this day. It's going to create in me that hunger and that greater appetite for you. And then Think of what Jesus also said in John chapter 4, verse 34. He says, to do the will of my Father is meat to me, sustenance to me. It'll empower you, enable you. It'll supply tremendous strength to you. If you, if, if you understand, hey, this is the will of God, this occupation, this career, this is what you've called me to do right now, then eat of it and say, God, I believe this is your will for me to be doing it. I realize God's will is not just me standing behind this pulpit, reading scripture or singing praises. There's a lot that goes into my life with tasks and responsibilities, just like you have. If you're retired or in the context of your career, if you're getting educated, if you say, God, I want to know, is this your will? And if he says yes, then eat of it. Eat of his presence, partake of his presence, partake of his word, and partake of his will. To do the will of my Father is meat to me, sustenance to me. It won't minimize my strength. It'll maximize my strength. Maybe you're going to work and you feel so weary. You need to say, I'm going to go worship. I'm not going to work. I'm going to go worship because I believe in that sphere of influence. It's God's will. So I'm going to be supplied with strength. It's going to be the meal I partake of. But be careful, again, of those subtle, simple things that you might think are safe. Just think of Esau. What was wrong with a, a soup? Lentil soup. Nothing wrong with that at all. But for him to partake of it was the giving up of his birthright. His identity in relationship to his father. Are we willing, are you willing to give up your birthright? Because of an appetite on the inside of you? 
that runs after that lentil soup and you inquire or seek the counsel of others and they say, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. But you know it's endangering your soul because built into what seems like simple apple pie, simple lentil soup is compromise and rebellion for you. So you have to step back and say, oh, Lord, remove this from me. I want to have a dominant desire, a dominant hunger and thirst for you. And that leads me to the final one. I want you to hear me. Worship team, don't come up just yet, but when we come to communion, I'm going to ask you to come up. A dominant identity that's rooted in him. There's a portion of scripture. I'm going to unpack it for you swiftly in the next three to four minutes. It's in John chapter 20 and verse 16 and 17. We're going to look at it a little differently maybe than you've ever looked at it, but it correlates directly to this issue of having a dominant identity that's rooted in God. Jesus said to her, we know the scene, we're familiar with it, it's right by the tomb. Mary, she turned toward him and cried out, Rabboni, that's in the Aramaic. And if we weren't sure what it meant, parenthetically, the apostle John will say she's referring to him as teacher, rabbi. Now, first of all, recognize the milieu, the environment that she's in. Pulsating in her own soul is the greatest disappointment, the greatest despair. But she doesn't realize right next to, please hear me, right next to her greatest discouragement, disappointment, despair is the greatest impact of revelation and intervention. It's that close to her. She doesn't realize it. Maybe for you right now, and I understand because I know many of you and what you're navigating through. I know the individuals that are in the hospital right now and crying out to God for a miracle. I know some of you online. You're in the midst of just an overwhelming sense of disappointment and discouragement and despair. But listen, you might be closer right next to God's direct revelation and intervention. Because for Mary, it was right behind her. Right behind her. It was that close. Breathing alive. When she was feeling the presence of death, life was that close. That close. Don't fall into despair. Fall into his arms, to his presence. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out, Rabboni. Jesus said, now, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I know at first Almost that sounds caustic and mean-spirited and rejecting, callous and unkind. It's like, don't touch me. In the context of the passage, it's a, it's a different voice in the grammar. We're used to the active and the uh, passive voice. In the Greek language of the New Testament, there's a middle voice. We don't have that. It means an act is already occurring. So in other words, the picture is that she has fallen prostrate at his feet, and is wrapping herself around him. So she's already engaged in a connection. So he's inviting her to stop doing that. In other words, stop holding on to what you're familiar with. Because, see, the title she gives him is Rabboni, teacher, rabbi. And Jesus is about to reveal to her, listen, I am that I'll always be, but I am so much more. I am the living, resurrected Christ. 
So don't hold on to the familiar. Don't hold on to what you're accustomed to. I'm not simply now the Lamb of God. I'm the Lion of Judah, the risen Christ. See, this was her moment to be impacted, what we hear about in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Oh, that I know the power of your resurrection. She began to understand there's, there's something happening here. That's why after this, when she runs back to the disciples, she says, not I re met Rabboni. I've met the Lord. I've met the Lord. The scripture says, do not hold on to me. Don't hold on to that which is familiar. And scholars have wrestled with that. They wondered exactly what Christ was saying. But I believe this is what he's saying. When you, when you read the writings of like uh, Augustine, John Chrysostom, he's a church father, or Thomas Aquinas. They're all exegeting this passage of Scripture, and they're trying to see its application to us. And, and there's an illumination that comes from it to realize that Christ is making a declaration who he is. And then the launching pad is to discover who you are in him. Now that's the connecting point of this dominant identity. He says to Mary, Mary, I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. In other words, your identity is rooted not in your experience, education, title, livelihood, career, or occupation. All of that is a reality. That's who you are, but you are more than that. He's the lamb, yes, but he's more than that. He's the lion of Judah. He is the crucified Christ, but he's more than that. He's the resurrected Christ, and he wants that to be applied to you and to me, to realize, oh, I can't hold on to the familiar. Listen, this generation, this world, you hear the passion in my heart. We're in a new season. We're in a new time. The world will never be the way the world was. And God is calling us as his sons and daughters to rise up as sons and daughters that understand I am more than my career. There's a call in me to be his son and his daughter. Peter, you see, he struggled with that. It's recorded in the Gospel of John in chapter 21, just one chapter after this. You see, Peter, according to the Scripture, encounters Jesus. He's risen. But it was no more of a doctrine or a theology to him. It was, he, he, he's alive. Okay. It's not really impacting me. You, you're alive. And then there's another encounter when he comes and visits eight days later with Thomas and the other disciples. Obviously, contextually, by inference, Peter's there. So there's a second encounter. That's in chapter 20. So Peter has one and he has two, but it's not getting through. Because in John chapter 21, it says Peter says, hey, he invites six other disciples. There's seven of them in total. Let's go to the Sea of Galilee and go fishing. And they all said, yeah, let's go fishing. You see, he still saw his identity as a fisherman. And then Jesus comes on the scene. He cleans up the incorrect self-interpretation and self-commentary. What's your self-interpretation about you? What's your self-commentary? Do you base it on the composite of, well, this is my rearing. This is, uh, here's my ethnicity, my race, my education, my career. Is that it? Is that it? 
Are you going to allow the devil in this world to define you there? Oh, no, you've got to say, no, no, no. No one's going to bury me. I'm not going to go to my grave. And that is not going to be the words that they speak at my funeral. I've gone into some cemeteries, and I've seen it. It, it says, uh, Joe Schmo, I'll just use that name, architect. That's it. And I'm not minimizing the architect. I thank God for architects. But is that it? Is that your life? Are you holding on to what's familiar? Are you holding on to what is comfortable? Are you holding on to the stereotyped image, the self-interpretation, self-commentary that you have about you? Or will you let go and lay hold of what Jesus says to you? You are his son and his daughter. You are a child of God. My father and your father. My God and your God. And when you say, Lord, I want that identity that supersedes my past, my experience, my title, my education, my livelihood, being retired, I'm more than my career. There's a call in my life that this generation deeply needs. See, Peter had to have that encounter. You know why Jesus and Jesus wasn't minimizing the fact that he was a fisherman. He was just accentuating, there's that and more. There's that and more to your life. Don't put boundaries. Don't put limitations. I'm looking at someone over here. You think, well, I'm too old. No, you're not. Moses received his call in his 80s. Shook a whole nation. Don't ever place limitations when you have God as your God and he's your father. Because there's something sacred and holy about a call on every single one of your lives. You see, Jesus had to say basically to Peter, Peter, listen, I need you to be more than a fisherman. I need you to be a, a spokesman, a voice, a prophet on the day of Pentecost, proclaiming the power of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I need you to have a shadow that brings healing to those that are sick and diseased. There's a call on your life. Don't go to your grave until you fulfill that call that God Almighty's placed on your life. You let go of every stereotyped image, everything that's spewed on you by Satan and hell and demons in society, and you listen to what God says about you and how he desires to use you in this generation for his glory. With all your heart and soul and spirit, in honor to God, I'm going to ask you to stand, take hold of the communion elements. As the worship team comes up, we're going to partake of this, and then we're going to sing this song. And I want you to sing it with all your heart, all your being. I know there's a new season unfolding in my life. There's a new season unfolding in yours. If you're watching online, listen to what God is saying to you. Be obedient to him. When we partake of communion, it's our moment to say, God, I want this to be the greatest appetite in my life, greatest hunger in my life. I want to partake of you, Jesus. We know in John 6, strong imagery, as I indicated earlier, but it speaks about the fact that the only way this works is you've got to be on the inside and not on the outside. Maybe you've never received Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. Maybe for you, the reality of even the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection, were like, for you like Peter. Well, that's good. But it never connected until that day. When Jesus said, do you love me? 
and then Peter could engage his will in his heart. Maybe this is your moment to say, Jesus, I receive you into my heart and my life. There's so much stuff I've got in my life. There's a whole lot of sin, and I'm so embarrassed and humiliated by it. If anyone really knew, and he knows you, he knows you. He knows you, and he loves you. He died for you. Say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I repent of them. I, I turn from them, and I turn to you, and I receive you into my life, into my heart to be my Savior the forgiver of my sins, and to be the Lord, the supreme leader of my life. I receive the promise of abundant life, a life filled with purpose, and the promise of eternal life. To flee the wrath that will come. For it's appointed unto every man once to die, and then judgment, the reality of a real heaven and hell. But I receive you as my Savior. Because I want you to say to me, like you said to Mary, my Father and your Father my God and your God. And for those of you who are holding the elements in your hand, that bread, that bread symbolizes in a sacred way his broken body for you. Just hold that up before your eyes and say, oh God, I want a dominant desire in me for you. I want a dominant appetite in me for you. And I want a dominant identity that's ruled not by outside, but by your voice and your presence in me. I partake now that it's not on the outside, but on the inside. Would you partake of the bread? It symbolizes the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the juice that's in the container before you and those of you that are home, whatever container you have, just look at that for a moment. As you peer at that juice, it's, in, it's a, a sacred symbol of the blood that was shed to wash you and me clean so we can hear the promise in John chapter 1 verse 12 that says to as many as received him gave the power to become sons and daughters of the most high by the blood of Jesus would you partake now partake Father God we thank you for your presence we thank you for the reality of what you did at Calvary and because of your broken body and your shed blood we can become sons and daughters of the Most High. An identity that is rooted in you, dominated by your voice, and not the voice of society or Satan, or even ourselves. And that will fulfill the destiny that you've put in us. And we will let go of the familiar and lay hold of what you have for us, Lord. That we are more than what I and others define ourselves to be. In Jesus' name.